Yo, John. Hey, Scott. It's fun to like recreate magic for people listening. We tried to, we started recording like two minutes of podcast and then technology said, no, you're not. But we're trying this again. We're doing it live. As, as far as I'm concerned, every minute with you, Scott, is magic. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. No so, hey, John, you like uh, movies from a leftist and sometimes religious lens? Absolutely. Me too. This is Popcorn Eschaton, a side, a side podcast story of Zebras in America, where me, Scott Thurow, and my, my uh, buddy, uh, John Arminio, discuss films from a leftist and religious lens. And lately we've sort of just been going having fun with certain like specific topics and john you really love or are very interested in films unpacking christianity and in particular sort of martin scorsese's own questions of faith and movies where you know catholicism or christianity are sometimes the primary protagonist or as you said in in a deleted scene the antagonist of a story yeah you know um yeah scorsese's view on catholicism has been very profoundly influential to me you know he's definitely one of my favorite filmmakers that's why i wanted to begin this podcast uh, quest with passion of the christ or jesus the Last Temptation of Christ. Yes, I did very it again. Movie. <laughs> um, and so his his journey as a filmmaker has sort of or clearly influenced my own journey as a movie watcher, and that led me to the movies of Palin Pressburger because. You know, uh, they're some of Martin Scorsese's f- favorite filmmakers, and because they certainly touch on similar topics with the film Black Narcissus, I wanted to tie that film with Scorsese's own exploration of the perils of, you know, faith and arrogance with uh, the film Silence. Yeah, and I was really, I thought this was a very toothful combo. For one, Black Narcissus is obviously a film that was very influential to Martin Scorsese and an influential movie, period. You know, and Silence I have many thoughts about and I'm just I'm just excited to talk about it because yeah. I think because Martin Scorsese has been making movies for five or six decades a lot of movies that if another director made would be a top five movie or just like considered a great movie is sometimes lost in the sauce when you have an oeuvre so large. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Martin Scorsese's 2016 Silence if he hadn't made all the movies he made would be much more highly regarded. In fact, I've, I don't think the movie is very highly regarded. 
Yeah, um, I think I would have to agree because I, I think, you know, if people think about the the recent output of Scorsese, I think that's sort of been The Irishman, um, which I do really like, but that is sort of a, a going back to basics. And I, I don't mean mm -hmm. that derisively at all. It's just, it's familiar territory as far as Scorsese's most popular films go, like a, a gangster movie with Robert De Niro and, and a lot of his other like favorite collaborators from his past. But, you know, one of the most... Um, inspiring and endearing things about Scorsese is his incredibly diverse filmography, you know, from the Age of Innocence to Kandun to, to Silence. You know, there's just so many areas he's explored. And I was going to talk about Age of Innocence mm -hmm. because I think Age of Innocence is a really great movie that if made by another director, it would be like, oh, this is a crowning work. Yeah, but a, a movie like Age of Innocence or I don't know New York Story. Well, no, I love New York Stories. After Hours or something. Yeah. Is, those are like minor works. And I think and, like you know, hopefully a movie that we eventually get to uh, Bringing Out the Dead, which is tonally and um, paced the in exact antithesis of Silence. Like it's just full on like late nineties am amphetamine fueled. Nicolas Cage energy, but when you watch The Silence, it's forcing you to meditate on the horror of the actions of these characters. Totally. And, you know, I even think Hugo mm -hmm. was a really wonderful movie that was just showing that Martin Scorsese is just a master of his craft, so whatever genre he's doing he has a real ability to do it. So even when he does a what feels like a kid's movie but is also an ode to cinema, I just thought he did really quite well. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, let's let's uh let's talk about silence, you know? Mm -hmm. Um yeah, give how what would be your little um a little synopsis, a little invitation. Silence uh, is adapted from the 1966, 1966 novel by Shishuka, Shishuku uh, Endo. And, of course, uh, um, sort of revealing Scorsese's Catholicism and uh, willingness to take on a, another burden. Very soon after he completed The Last Temptation of Christ, an archbishop who sort of supported the film... Um, gave Scorsese silence like in 88 or 89 and says, here, this should be your next movie. And so, of course, he would spend the next 25 years trying to get silence made this, in this exact same way he'd spent a decade or so trying to get Last Temptation made. But it's about sort of the last wave of Portuguese Jesuit priests trying to convert Japanese citizens in... 17th century Japan. And so this was at a very tumultuous time in Japanese history. Uh, there had been decades or centuries of, of war between various warlords and until finally the Tokugawa shogunate consolidated power in the early 17th century. And that really caused a rift between 
the Portuguese and the Japanese government. And in the opening of the film, uh, Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, uh, who play Padres, Garupe, and Rodriguez, are talking with their their mentor, their boss, played by Kieran Hines. And they're told how, you know, Japan is no longer hospitable for priests. And they mentioned the Shimabara Rebellion. And that was an incident that occurred uh, um, a couple of decades before the setting of this film where it, w- it was a peasant revolt um, because the Tokugawa shogunate had instituted policies that were very reminiscent of European feudalism where the imperial state required taxes from the local lords, the daimyos, and the local lords then tax the peasants. And this is particularly predatory in southern Japan. And the citizenry were being taxed to death. And so when you have this introduction of this foreign element, this foreign culture saying, you know, you don't have to take this, um, we're all equal in God's eyes. That was really the straw that broke the camel's back and inspired the peasants to revolt, um, along with several ronin samurai. And tens of thousands of people died. And the rebellion was eventually put down and executed, uh, and many re- rebels were executed. Um, and and it was just, it was just very indicative of of the fact that missionary work um, can really complicate an already complicated political scene, but also that um, the rich and powerful taking advantage of the poor knows no boundaries. It really does not. So yeah, you have this movie that is, you know, by all accounts, what you'd call like an epic. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much three hours long, right? Yeah, and it's, it, it's... <laughs> for me, um, just me being me, it felt a lot longer on this. I, I rewatch it twice for this podcast, but the first time I watch it, I think I iced just away, take notes. Like every time somebody said something profound, I had to like write it down. And so, of course, I'm writing down people's dialogue every five minutes. So my, my first watch took about, I don't know, it felt like 12 hours. Yeah, it's also one of those three-hour movies that certainly feels like three-hour movies. Yeah. And, you know, it 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 doesn't drag. It just is, it's not fast. It It takes its time. And, you know, yeah, so as you said, Andrew, uh, Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield play these priests. They go to Japan. They're sort of looking for their one of their mentors, played by Liam Neeson. And they're very steadfast in their faith. And they meet some believers and go through challenges. And I, I just forgot how good this movie is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I find very profound about the film, one of the, you know, one of the many things, is that the, the values of Christianity are being put to the test almost immediately and constantly. 
especially Adam Driver's character, it's clear he is looking down on a lot of these peasants who are desperate for not only food, but, you know, spiritual guidance. And you could just tell, like, they don't like being in the same room with these peasants. That they, They're not shy about being, like, revolted by the way they smell. Um, and, you know, these are... And Rodriguez, Adam Driver's character... No, I'm sorry. Um, Andrew Garfield's character. Garfield. Yeah. He's, he's much more able to commune with these peasants, you know, one of whom is played by uh, legendary Japanese director Tsukamoto, who Scorsese is a great fan of. And it's, it's just telling, like, the, the different approach of these two men have to the people who are they're supposed to be the shepherds of. And that really sets the stage for the central... Conf- the central spiritual conflict of the film where once these people are captured and rounded up by Japanese authorities and are asked under torture to deny Christ, is the Christian thing to do to deny Christ to spare someone else suffering? Um, and that question is asked in a variety of different contexts and it's compelling each and every time for me and there's not really a definitive answer Mm -hmm. right because each character has their own response to it but is is renouncing your faith to save the suffering of others not maybe consistent with faith should you have faith in the face of torture for others? I don't know. You know, one of the peasants asks Father Rodriguez, like, I, I, you know, he's like, I don't know what my faith is, but I love God. Isn't that a kind of faith? And, you know, Rodriguez says, yes. So if, if your love for your fellow human being means that you want to spare them suffering isn't doing anything you can to spare that suffering isn't that faith enough um and several characters urge rodriguez to do as christ would do and you know we can't know but in my opinion i think jesus would do whatever it takes to spare someone else suffering. But at the same time, you know, the person doing the torturing is asking that question. Right. So can we take that philosophical perspective at face value, even if it's correct? Right. What are, how are you supposed to respond to your oppressor about oppression? That's not a necessarily answerable question. Yeah. I don't think it is. And yeah, the way that Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver's characters react to this and in a in a sense also Liam Neeson's character is is a driving part of the film and I think the acting in the movie is really well done mm-hmm. and 
Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield lost a lot of weight for the movie. And you can tell. I'm just very surprised. I think not a lot of people saw this movie when it came out. And I don't think a lot of... I just don't think it's very highly regarded. Yeah, yeah that, that baffles me as well. Because I think especially with some of the supporting characters, there's such interesting performances, such like daring performances... And I think they all really nail the the tone of the film. So I think, you know, one of the most memorable characters is Issei Ogata, who plays the the Inquisitor, who's clearly like an intellectual giant um, mm-hmm. in this community. Like, he knows what's going on. He knows how to manipulate people. He's a real sort of intimidating presence even if he's physically slight and this character was based on a real guy who was converted to christianity and then apostatized which i think is an interesting bit of backstory to him Um, but he's really able to manipulate he's clearly manipulated Liam neeson's character who Mm -hmm. then goes on to manipulate adam driver's character and like the the fact that he's he, he commits evil through kindness, you know he's like oh oh padre you know I I don't want to torture you this way don't you want to be like Christ and save your 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 fellow man wouldn't that be such a great opportunity for you and and he also has one of the most important lines in the film which like has been in my brain since I saw the trailer. Like, the price for your glory is their suffering. Right. And it's such it's such a spiritual truth in the context of, of this film, but it's coming from the mouth of somebody who couldn't care if those people being tortured lives or dies. It's Yeah, it's, it's very profound. Mm-hmm. You know, before I had seen this movie, I didn't really know much about Christianity in Japan because I don't think of Christianity in Japan I don't really I don't think there's a large percentage of Christians in Japan yeah I mean Endo Um, the the author of the book himself is a Catholic oh have you read the book I I have not no unfortunately well it's okay I I have not read it either makes me definitely makes me want to though well, yeah, if we ever do a popcorn eschaton uh, book book club, I think there's a lot of yeah things we can enjoy. I mean, we, you know, we already talked about Mishima and you know uh, a lot of a lot of intellectual and fiction books. But yeah, there there's just a lot of pain and suffering in this movie, and yeah, just. It's just really there's a lot of there's a lot of beauty in some of the upsetting scenes and I assume if you're listening to this podcast you've I've hope you've seen silence you know uh spoilers you know when when the priests separate and they come back and you see you know the fate of Adam Driver's character 
I, I honestly was surprised and upset. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that I think that was a little bit of of a foreshadowing in, in like a scene a few minutes earlier where it it, it slipped out from Liam Neeson's mouth. Um, he says, "Our Lord." And when when Andrew Garfield says, "Did you just say our Lord?" Oh no, no, that's impossible. I couldn't have. So it it sort of implants the idea in your head that there's a secret life, a secret spiritual life. Um, within these men who have denied Christ outwardly. And even when we first see Liam Neeson's character, he's clearly nervous and broken and taking cues, it seems, about what to say and how to say it from his, his jailers. So you're never quite sure if you should be taking his words at face value. Oh, I don't think you should. Yeah. I think... Yeah. I think these characters have denounced Christ to just a as a facade. Yeah. And and it is interesting that, you know, th- this little token of a cross was put in Andrew Garfield's hand by his wife who was sort of assigned to him by um by the the governor. Um so did he continue to sort of proselytize in secret to his family, maybe? Um, you know, if his wife was willing to risk being captured and executed just to have him, you know, cremated with this token of Christianity, it, it's, it speaks to even more layers and, and depths to, to these characters. Yeah, and this, you know, we... We live in a time where, in this country at least, you can have many religious beliefs and for the most part, you know, mm-hmm. be okay. Yeah. But there there was a time where anywhere to be religious was a radical act, especially in a place. And I do think that religion is it can be a radical act in many places, especially in places that instill one belief over the other. But it's very interesting when you look at, you know, the 1600s, what people were, what, how revolutionary an act it would be to bring Christianity to Japan or, or, or insist on your faith. But I believe that if you're going to bury your husband with a cross then they probably never really faltered for their belief. Yeah, and you know, there's there's reoccurring visual motifs in this movie. So, like homemade crosses, um, and especially when they're shown in close up in somebody's hands, like battered, dirty hands, cupped in a very religious icon manner, holding a tiny homemade crucifix like that image is repeated over and over again in the film and so when it's like the last shot you see and it's in the hands of somebody as they're being cremated i think it's exceptionally powerful yeah also with did you enjoy the score yes yes uh very much so right so i think um 
the Klugs who did the music. It just really, it just works. Mm. It just hits, as as the kids say. Was there a particular are, scene that hit for you about in the score, particularly, if you can recall? I think, you know, when Garupe dies, mm-hmm. it's like pretty, pretty profound, and again, it's upsetting, and it's it's really impressive because sometimes it's hard for me because Adam Driver has such a strange-looking face. Yeah. It can be it can be hard for me to get into the verisimilitude of him playing the characters he plays, but I just thought he did a very good job, and I was impressed. Yeah, because yeah, that scene is so important because he he's not we're only seeing him from far away, and he had been absent from the film for quite a long time in that moment. A bit, yeah. And you know he had, like I mentioned earlier, he'd been pretty sort of patronizing to the mm-hmm. peasants but in the scene he he drowns himself trying to save peasants yeah and so he he gives his life for them and so and then as rodriguez is watching and it's just yes yeah, so deeply affecting right because he he finally his revolutionary act is to is to help yeah and save and I was really impressed by that. And I was really, what, what, what drove you to suggest this film in the context of our podcast? Well, um, well I think this and Black Narcissus had been in the back of my mind as far as movies of spiritual themes to to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I remember. Um, being deeply affected by silence, in particular, the first time I watched it, you know, I saw it in the theaters. I I might have been by myself. Um, wouldn't surprise me. And and yeah, like you said, it, it's it is sort of surprising how little this film is is regarded. You know, considering that it's made by one of the most famous filmmakers alive, and it and it completely retains its power. Yeah, sorry. I just, I sort of had a religious dissociation for a couple of seconds. I apologize. It's quite all right. You know, these. It's been interesting because, I I work, a lot, and so, my free time, is dedicated to time with my partner mm-hmm. and, working out and. So when I and and watching mindless television, like reality television, it's kind of it's very you know it's sort of the opium of the masses, if you will. I'm I'm I actually I don't really judge whatever you have to do. So the stuff that I'm watching these days is Deep Space Nine because I co-host a podcast called Southpaw Deep Space Nine where me and my buddy Sam go through every episode of Deep Space Nine and recap it from a leftist lens and then I'm watching these religious movies for our podcast so that's sort of all I'm watching I know that that you're 
your plate of films and TVs is definitely more dense than mine these days. Yeah, I... Yeah, so I'm I'm very fortunate that you're willing to take the the time that very small amount of time to these movies that I pick. So I, I very much appreciate it. It's important to me that we do this thing, and I you know give you a, a have have a a forum to talk about these things. I think you're you have an interesting voice, and I'm glad that you're spreading your podcast wings in here and in other places. Thank you. Same to you. Yeah. Um, but speaking of spiritual discussions, um, one of the most fascinating aspects about silence is the translator, uh, played by Tadanabu Asano, who engages with Rodriguez when he's captured and has and goes far beyond the role of just a translator. Um he, he starts engaging him in a spiritual debate about on the merits of Buddhism versus Christianity or Western ideals versus, you know, Japanese ideals. And, you know, one of the things that I, I thought was profound, um, he says, no one should interfere with another man's spirit to help others is the way of the Buddha and your way too. It is not necessary to win one side over to the other when there is so much to share. And so for for an interpreter and ostensibly your jailer to say that to you, you know, it's like they're not just trying to beat down Rodriguez with force. They're really trying to impress upon him the superiority of their own philosophy in a very, um, like, intellectual and, um, I don't want to say devious, but, but a calculated way. But, but also one that I think is, is truthful in their own hearts. Like, I, I think that they want Rodriguez to believe them. They want an honest convert out of him. Um, and in another scene, the interpreter, Rodriguez says to the interpreter, you know, at the end of the day, Buddha is just a man. And the interpreter says, well, that just proves your ignorance. No Buddhist would call the Buddha just a man. The Buddha gives us an ideal to strive for that we can, so we can achieve enlightenment if we were to just throw away our illusions and in that scene he's encouraging Rodriguez to throw away his own illusions and to see the Japan that's right in front of him absolutely and then there's also you know I'm sure as a person of faith and someone who's trying to figure out the mysteries you've considered or meditated or or read into Jesus's lost years. Yeah. So for people maybe unfamiliar with the Christian Bible, there's a there's a bit of time where where we don't know where Jesus was. I think it's from his teenage years to sort of when he comes back on the scene. Yeah. 
And when he comes back, he just has a very different philosophy. And there are many books and texts and beliefs that during those years when he traveled, that he maybe, you know, went to Tibet or India or the West because he came back with certain thoughts that some people would say are consistent with Buddhism in some ways. Yeah, and yeah, there's been so much like intellectual, archaeological, spiritual conjecture about what you know could have happened to Jesus, what his perspective was, and I think that's a lot of what the first half or more of what The Last Temptation of Christ is about. Uh, the book, I mean. Um, like, how did we get the teenage Jesus? How did he become the Messiah? And, yeah, it's it had to have been such a struggle. Um, but also, you know, from an archaeological or historical perspective, was it a post hoc construction? Were the writers of the Gospels, you know, a hundred years later, cobbling together stories and myths from the Near East or the Far East to construct the the ultimate Son of God? And, you know, I think that's a possibility um, and one that, as a, as a rational human being, I, I have to also c consider, even if I am a person of faith. Right. And there's, there's even, you know, I've read, there's this book um, that really changed my life when I was young, which were these lectures on ancient philosophy by Manly P. Hall, mm -hmm. and the secret texts of all ages, which are like, these gigantic encyclopedic books of Hermetica and Gnosticism and just sort of esoteric mysteries. And some of it is super, you know, embellished. But, you know, it, it was these encyclopedic tomes from the early 1900s where it's just sharing of rare books and encyclopedic and mystic ideas that were were very hard to come by in the early 1900s and i remember there there are some temples in the himalayas that claimed that claim proof that jesus was there and there have even been documentaries and people that try to claim that jesus was a buddhist monk so it's very interesting that in silence there there's this you know dichotomy and adversarial nature of Buddhism and Christianity when I think that there is a place for for both of them to talk to each other and obviously when we start talking about black narcissus which takes place in the Himalayas that there's this interesting thing going on yeah, and, you know, that adversarial relationship, you know, there's this continual metaphor in silence of, the, like, planting the seed in Christianity, but 
Japan is a, is a swamp. And that's a metaphor that the the Japanese like throw at Rodriguez. Like you cannot grow Christianity in the swamp that is Japan. Like you were not defeated by me, you were defeated by the swamp that is Japan. And so I, I find it fascinating that they're willing to describe their own country as a swamp in order to reject Christianity. Um, but in, in another scene, say, we don't have to win one over to their side. We, we should work together to improve the lives of others. Um, and so I, I think there's just so many angles all these other characters are, are playing or, or trying to reckon with within themselves. And, and you know, it, just one of the things that fascinates me about them, about silence. Yes, I think that's a really good place to transition to Black Narcissus. So tell me a little bit about Black Narcissus, John. Um, so, you know, Black Narcissus uh, adapted from the 1930 novel, 1939, excuse me, novel by Rumor Godin. Um, it's about a group of nuns who are assigned to go to the far east of India, outside of Darjeeling. And so if you just look at the like a, a map of South Asia, this area is almost equidistant from like Nepal and Bhutan and Bangladesh. So there's all sorts of different cultures like intermixing in this area. Um, but these nuns are, are sent there to take over a palace and turn it into a convent and school. And the film sets about sort of deconstructing this, the psychology of these nuns as they have to face their own inner demons in the face of the unbridled splendor and beauty of this place and their own inner des desires. Um, and I think you could write the film off as sort of, oh, another story about white people like <laughs> going east and like uh, losing themselves and or finding themselves. But I think uh, the movie is much more psychologically rich than that. And um, there are obviously problematic elements about the movie and we can get into those and I would like to. Um, but it's, it's also just unabashedly one of the most beautiful films ever made. And one of the gorgeous yeah, and just an astonishing use of studio sets, uh, just of photography, set design, uh, matte paintings, and and uh, cinematographer Jack Cardiff is just an absolute superstar for what he was able to achieve with uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Yeah, this this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen, and. You could, it's one of those movies where you could just screenshot almost any scene and put it on your wall, and you'd be like, Oh, yeah, this is art. Yeah. And the movie definitely is art, and it's just, it's very, who would have, it's very interesting sometimes when you realize that movies got made. That you're like, yo, 
I want to make this epic about some nuns losing their mind on a mountain and getting kind of sexy. And film it all in the studio in England. In England. Yeah. And be like, yeah, let's do it. Here's here's a here's a blank check. And it and that is going to be considered such a popular movie and loved movie by so many yeah. people cuz on it on its on its face as you said these are two movies about white people going to the east and losing their fucking minds but it's obviously deeper mm-hmm. than that you know because i think the movie does get at these sort of um subversion of your own personhood that becoming a nun um, sometimes forces these women to do. I'm not saying that's true for every every nun, certainly, but I think the main character played by Deborah Kerr, Sister Clouda, once you get into her backstory, it's clear that being a nun is not her first choice. She had this life as a very rich heiress um, who was lost after her her supposed marriage uh, broke up. Like, she was betrothed to this guy who, who left. Um, and you can tell in the opening scenes where, you know, she's being told, you know, you're the youngest sister to be put in charge of a convent. And, mm-hmm. and you could tell... A lot of yeah, pressure. And you could tell on her face, like, well, of course, yes. It would be me who would be the youngest woman to have such a responsibility um and so when you get into this place where the inner lives of these women start to come out where the person they always wanted to be bleeds out of their habit like even one of the sisters who's was supposed to be planting a vegetable garden she just keeps planting flowers Mm -hmm. Because she just wants more beauty in the world, and it's it's fascinating how the they cannot suppress the beauty within themselves anymore um, when they're out, you know, a thousand or ten thousand miles from where they came from, and and I think it it took the talents of these filmmakers to really to bring that psychology out through through visual storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's such a visual movie, and when you realize, yeah, that it wasn't made on location, it's sort of a, a modern feat yeah. of cinema, even though it's not modern. It was made 60, 70 years ago. It's incredibly impressive, and you have these characters that are told, you're not going to make it like a year you know and spoiler alert they don't yeah everything everything goes to shit and their their faith is challenged and yeah and and i i do want to bring up the 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 verisimilitude of this world created by michael powell and jack cardiff and and pressburger uh, because Michael Powell decided that this all should be filmed in England. There are some like exterior shots that were filmed like outside of the studio, but it's it's 
95% of the film is a studio creation. Because he just said, and probably quite rightly, that the disparity between the scenes shot in India and the scenes shot in Pinewood Studios would be immediately apparent to the viewer and the verisimilitude would be broken. Um, and these, these guys were such accomplished visual storytellers. They had the exactitude of pure artisans on every frame of this movie. And you could tell that from the previous films as well. And on the previous film, A Matter of Life and Death, a film maybe we could cover on this one, certainly it's, it's an incredibly spiritual film. They didn't use Deborah Kerr for the female lead because they wanted to hire an American actress to play the American character. So why in this movie do they hire Gene Simmons to play an Indian girl and, and right. paint her face this garish brown? that immediately breaks verisimilitude and have her play scenes against Sabu, who is a legit Indian movie star. Right. Um, and, it, and especially in the middle of the 1940s in England, there were more Indians in, in England because of, the, because of the war. And so it's not like they didn't have Indian actors to choose from. So even from pure cinematic perspective it's very frustrating that they chose to cast gene simmons in in this role as as an indian girl it's it's baffling to me um and i obviously <laughs> wish they would have made another just like if i wish they had just used the logic they used two years earlier for matter for matter of life and death um uh, but here but right here i'm did. guessing the the these are some of the problematic things that you're bringing to yeah, light. Yeah, the the fucking brown yeah. face. Yeah, and so you know, you know, like I said about westerns, a lot of the things we love, we wish were better, and and this is an example of that. Um, but I, you know, and I guess it's it's another example of how like me as a human in. 2023 else have to reckon with the legacy of Hollywood and or just the movie industry in general that if you watch a movie of this era if you see a person of color on screen it's more than likely going to be a racist depiction of them and if you don't see a person of color it's because systemic racism kept them from making art uh so sometimes you know we I think we should watch movies like this to to remind us of that Right, and how do you reconcile that this is unquestionably a very good movie and a beautiful movie, and these choices shouldn't have been made? Yeah. You know, when when you're when you see a movie where where Charlton Heston plays a Mexican, uh, Touch of Evil yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, which is another yeah. out and out masterpiece. Masterpiece. It's not my favorite or uh, Orson Welles. No, Orson Welles. I always get Orson Welles and George Orwell <laughs> confused um, because one was one was a genius and one is an overrated hack. Yes, George Orwell is an overrated hack. I'd love to talk about this sometime, wow. but not okay. today. He's he's not he's not the person you think he is. That's all I'm saying. Interesting. 
but sometimes you just gotta you gotta leave people wanting more. So I think I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna leave that for another day because I think that there's definitely an episode unpacking George sure. Orwell. But yeah, Orson Welles also the voice of um, Omnicron. No, that's that's Unicron. A, Unicron of the Transformers mm-hmm. movie, which is which is a deeply messianic film. I love that movie. By the way, <laughs> unabashedly, Transform Transformers '89 is a fantastic film, and a yeah, it's Optimus Prime is Jesus, yeah. obviously. And there's so much rebirth, and although the movie was designed to sell toys, it taught a lot of young men uh, how to grieve. And I, I have podcasted about that one on Film 89, so if you want to look through your your podcast uh, archive, you can find it. Um, but an example of how a group of people just trying to do their best craft can inev- can almost inadvertently make art um so i didn't think we'd get into transformers on this conversation but i'm glad we got there this is the kind of podcast where you'll talk about black narcissus and transformers in the same sentence it's just very hard for me to think about orson welles and not think about transformers 86 and also 86 sorry i'm thinking batman Hmm. 89 because if you're listening to this podcast around the time it came out, there's a lot of fanfare about the Flash movie starring Ezra Miller. <laughs> but if you've not been living under a rock, I'm not sure how this is being done, but I'm I mean, I'm I'm assuming that this movie is designed to restart the continuity, yeah. whatever, I don't care. But why am I drawing a blank on who played Michael yeah. Keaton? Michael Keaton is Batman again. Yes. I think. I saw him. I saw that he's in the movie. I'm assuming yeah. that he's But Batman. for me, like, what a way to burn an opportunity to do a Batman Beyond movie. Because if you have Batman Beyond as old Bruce Wayne and then get somebody of Ezra Miller's age to play Terry McGinnis, like, that'd be amazing. But in, instead, they're using Michael Keaton to... to to take the focus away from the fact that Ezra Miller is a star of your movie. Yeah. But anyway, so I've been thinking about Michael Keaton. Cause, and so that's why I'm thinking 89, because he was in Batman yeah. 89. That's where I was going with that. But yeah, that's a totally different thing. But yeah, Black Narcissus, it's problematic. And there a lot of movies that people love from that time as you're saying there's there's not a lot of actors of color and sometimes when the characters are actors of color and they're not played by actors of color it's really offensive now you know can you i was about to say is one thing more offensive than others you know i'll say that breakfast at tiffany's is i can't really watch that movie cannot because because the 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 Asian stereotypes by Mickey Rooney are so important. So even though Moon River is one of my favorite songs ever written for a film, I can't I can't enjoy that movie because it's so over the top. But then my question is, is 
Is it better to be over the top? Because then you can just say, oh, I, I'm not even dealing with this movie because because it's just flat out racist where, where Black Narcissus has more subtle racial elements. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to tell somebody whether or not that they should appreciate Black Narcissus um, with the mm-hmm. problematic elements or that they should or shouldn't appreciate Breakfast at, at Tiffany's. Um, I think with something like Breakfast at Tiffany's, like if you don't acknowledge the problematic um, nature of that movie, you're Looney Tunes. Um, mm-hmm. But I think with, with Black Narcissus, I think it, it is a movie about arrogance. The arrogance of these nuns who think that they can go in there and that the ways of English Christianity is going to immediately convert and persuade the local populace to being subservient to them. Because I, I think, by and large, um, the locals are treated in a very patronizing nature. Um, and I don't... and. In that sense, the film is not on their side. Like we're we're, it's, it's it's not a good look. Um, missionary work uh, does not come off well in this film. Even if no, it's an incredibly gorgeous film. Um, these nuns look pretty fucking cool in these white habits, especially when you have a face like Deborah Kerr. Um, and you know, there's. As a Catholic, I'm a big fan of, like, simmering, roiling passion underneath a, a placid surface. That's That always gets my attention. And so I think when the film is as complex and nuanced and when so many things are going on in it, it for me, it's easier to take the bitterness of, you know, more than one character... Um, being in in brownface, whereas with Breakfast at Tiffany's, it's supposed it's supposed to be like a fun sex romp, and and so when and in that film, Mickey Rooney's performance is is so over the top that even even if he was playing a white person, I think it would be out of step with the, the with the tone of the film. So it's it's bad in a lot of ways. Um, but on the, on the same thing on. In the same vein, like I said, the brown face in this film is antithetical to the philosophy that went into making this movie in the first place. So, I don't know. A lot going on. When I first saw this movie 10 or 12 years ago, I probably would have had a different answer. And I'm assuming in 10 or 12 years, I'll have a different answer then. Well, you know, if we're still doing the podcast in 10 or 12 years, we'll have to revisit it. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it's a very good movie with some yeah. problems. And I think if you, you know, I'm not I like these these directors. I don't know a lot of their work, to be honest, because I don't always search out movies from the from the 50s. I, I have to be honest. I I sort of need to be recommended movies. I my my favorite place to discover movies is the 80s that's that's where i like to be because i just find it to be such a strange place in time so when i'm searching out new movies that i've not seen 
I'm looking in the 80s. I'm looking at movies I haven't seen by directors I like. No. Also, I've been slowly watching every single Agnes Varda okay, movie. Yeah. Uh, because she has a lot mm-hmm. of them. And I think she might be the greatest French filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I said it. I think... I know calling her French New Wave is depends on your, you know, your criteria. But I think she's the greatest for me, to mm. me, of of the French New Wave and really of French cinema. Yeah, I, I think, and like for me, as a uh, in regards to this era of movies, um, I think I let people like George Lucas or Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese sort of lead me to them. So, you know, when I heard that, hey, Star Wars was inspired by, you know, John Ford and Akira Kurosawa, I'm like, tilted my gaze in that direction. And certainly, like I said, Martin Scorsese tilted me in the direction of Palin Pressburger, and I've seen a few of their movies, and I love all of them. Um, but, but also, just big credit to my parents, who, you know, watched old movies with me or without me all the time. Like I, I I probably watched Laura five times before I turned to 10 just because it's my mom's favorite movie. And so I, I certainly had an appreciation for all eras of cinema growing up. And so I'm, I'm always going to be deeply grateful for that. Yeah, no, it's, it's not a blind spot I'm happy about, but that's, that's what's fun about life is that, there's always new opportunities to enjoy stuff. And, you know, you can either pine and be sad of, of all the things you missed or be excited about all the doors you can open. Have you ever seen The Little Hours? Yes. I, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think it's a it's a great movie. It's sort of like a post mumblecore yeah. comedy with Aubrey Plaza which it's sort of, which is about mm-hmm. nuns yeah it's a movie with Aubrey <laughs> Plaza Brie Larson and about nuns and i don't like it <laughs> so what an accomplishment right, but well it's so it's so post mumblecore yeah. that it's really hard because it's it's a movie about 15th century nuns, but using like hipster mm. language. Like it, it's so disaffected but I wonder, that I, I I'm not emotionally yes. invested in anything. But for some reason, when I was like rewatching Black Narcissus, I was somehow thinking about this movie, and I was like, "How did that happen?" Yeah. But I mean, I know how it happened. It disaffected nuns, but. One movie is a masterpiece, and another movie is Black Narcissus. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Whereas, but like, just in in contrast to to Little Hours in Black Narcissus, the 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 character that goes the most off the deep end, Sister Ruth. There's a scene where she very like emphatically puts on lipstick, 
and just the emotional resonance of her putting on lipstick is just like, oh my god, what's she doing? Oh, like you're just put in, right. in this like such sense of turmoil by this one simple act, and then there's a, a later scene like a few minutes later where she appears in a doorway in a red dress and it's like straight out of a Mario Bava movie like whoa like the, the colors the colors it's um I don't know <laughs> Black Nurses has got me Scott yeah it, it clearly did and yeah as we as we sort of wind down wind down <laughs> why am I saying it weird wind down what are some closing thoughts that you'd like to present about silence in Black Narcissus? Um, well, just I hope that as the years go on, the reputation of, of silence um, grows because it's a movie that affected me deeply the first time I watched it and a movie that I've been thinking about all the time since I rewatched it for this podcast I, I i think you know all the performances are just fantastic um it's incredibly profound it, it asks the deepest possible questions in a way only a great piece of art can and um i'm thankful that scorsese was able to get it made and i'm thankful for everybody you know going to taiwan to to film it and, and walking in yeah. that mud. So much mud. I think, yeah, I think it's a movie that will be a cult classic later. I think I think the, the fact that it's a three hours just sometimes can be a, a barrier for some. You know, there are people that couldn't watch the Irishman in one sitting, you know, which is wild to me. Just watch a movie. <laughs> For real. And, and I think with, with Black Narcissus, you know, um, I, I think it's a masterpiece. I think Pal and Pressburger are, are geniuses. You know, I, I watched an interview with Jack Cardiff shortly before he died. Um, and so this was like in the early 2000s, but he he described the relationship between Emmerich Pressburger, who was a Hungarian immigrant, and, and Michael Powell, um, who was, you know, an Englishman's Englishman, as, as f- he, he used the word em- very empathetic, which I found interesting for, like, like a 90-something-year-old English guy um, th- that he used that word, and that, that they were able to sort of, like, take advantage of each other's strengths and tamp down each other's weaknesses as artists. And I think you can see that in in their films like A Matter of Life and Death or in, in Black Narcissus. And I think it's it's one of the great filmmaking duos in history. And even with the problematic elements of something like, like Black Narcissus, I think it's a filmography well worth exploring. Absolutely. And I enjoy exploring these movies with you, Same John. You, Scott. Thank you for taking this uh, this missionary journey with me. I enjoy it. You know, this Jewish boy from Brooklyn enjoys talking Christianity you. with you. All right. See you, see you on the flip side. <laughs>